today on DOOMED! Do you all remember the Tea Party? I mean, if you've been paying attention to politics at the beginning of this decade, they'd be pretty hard to forget. The Tea Party were the insurgent group that pretty much gave the Republican Party a lot of problems throughout the early 2010s and took over a number of seats in Congress. But that's not all they were about. And just because you haven't heard about them recently, that doesn't mean they've disappeared. So we're going to do a complete refresher today about the Tea Party, where they came from, and what they're doing now, all so we could get to the current day conspiracy theory that is QAnon, and how they may very well be the next Tea Party. Joining me today to discuss this, and let me bring her up on the feed here so we can get this conversation rolling. Joining me for today's show is Dr. Rachel Bloom. She is an assistant professor at the Carl Albert Congressional Research and Study Center and the Department of Political Science at the University of Oklahoma and the author of the book, How the Tea Party Captured the GOP, Insurgent Factions in American Politics. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Now, this when well, we actually uh, were on the air earlier this week on Cincinnati Public Radio uh, discussing this topic, and it was a very uh, shortened, condensed version of what we're going to discuss today. But uh, it was very nice being on that show with you, and I'm glad it happened because I became aware of your book, and uh, that's what brought you on the show today. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Tea Party, I, I guess let's start here. There's probably a lot of people who even, you know, even politically minded people who listen to this show who are saying to themselves right now, why, why is Matt doing a show in the year 2020 uh, as we're about to at the end of 2020 presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Why is he doing a show on the Tea Party? So w- what is the importance of the Tea Party today before I guess we get to we take it all back to where it all came from? Well, I don't think we can understand the Republican Party of today or the rise of Donald Trump or the the kind of disintegration of part of the country into conspiracy theories without understanding the Tea Party and then specifically how it was able to be successful within the Republican Party. Because in essence, the Tea Party used the tools the Republican Party had given it to become the new establishment. So when we talk about the Republican Party today, we're essentially talking about the Tea Party. Right. Right, so let's let's go back. Now, I remember uh, hearing about the Tea Party during the uh, the primaries in 2008 as basically what the Ron Paul fan base were calling themselves, the Ron Paul supporters. And you know, there were certainly different aspects that you'll you'll discuss that that they shared with what the Tea Party later became known as. But it was a bit of a different group. And then I remember really seeing that the Tea Party had taken off into this new evolution of Tea Party with that Glenn Beck rally in 2010 at the, uh, what was it, the, the march, what was it, the rally at Washington or something like yeah, that? The rally to Restore Honor or something. Right, I have it right here. The Restoring Honor rally, right, and he did it yeah. on, on like Martin Luther King Day or something like that. It was something very inappropriate for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for him to be holding this on. But, um... So let's let's 
that's my own personal recollections of the early days of the Tea Party. But tell me, t- tell the, tell us where the Tea Party came from, or where the beginnings of the Tea Party. I, I mean, I think that's that's pretty accurate. The, the first time people started using that that term as something that they could be was right up before that election. But the Tea Party, as we came to know it, is pretty different than the Ron Paul supporters. Um, so there's this famous rant um, from CNBC commentator Rick Santelli in February 2009. So right after Obama's election, the ACA, the bailouts, um, and Santelli goes on the floor of the Chicago Stock Exchange and just riffs or rants about how we shouldn't be paying the losers mortgages and everyone who wants to go back to how it was, like, join me for a tea party. and. Quickly, people started picking up on this. So you got a lot of spontaneous movement in places like Seattle, and then you get a little bit of funding. So at this point, uh, this phase of the Tea Party is a lot of it to most people. The Koch brothers jump in, they start handing out um, materials on how to make signs, how to organize, how to have events in local groups and make websites and use Twitter. But it's that rally that we get to, there's Million Man March in 2009 in April. And then we have Glenn Beck kind of later on moving into the 2010 midterm elections. And in that space, the Tea Party became its own beast. So I remember being in DC uh, for that rally when everyone was there for Glenn Beck. And like the, the big thing you noticed was that everyone on the Metro had a tri-cornered hat on or was wearing a flag or was in some sort of costume, like period Civil War reenactment costume. And, you know, they're all going downtown DC, which is, you see a lot of stuff in DC, but not that. Right. And I remember thinking like, oh, this, these people are real dedicated. And I, I even knew some people who'd bust in from middle America to come to this, um, were very dedicated to it. And that's when I started to be like, Ooh, you know, I think, I think a lot of, of regular people like this. Right. And that's when I started paying attention. No, now, people need to understand that, you know, when when we talk about the Tea Party, the, the, the word Tea Party, the, 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 the first word tea actually stood for something. Taxed enough already. Right. So these were people who ostensibly were anti-taxes. Now, I assume that must have been what this group was about. Is that true, Rachel? They, they wanted you to think that, kind right. of. Keith. <laughs> Um, but that started cracking really quickly. So you got the keep your government hands off my Medicare kinds of signs. Um, just like this clear misunderstanding of, uh, of entitlements and taxes and who was getting what, um, and you, you had a lot of animus against change and particularly against the person of Barack Obama that really had nothing to do with how he was handling the financial crisis or anything else. So it was this generalized fear of what he represented for the country. Now, what would you say the 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 number one motivating factor of the Tea Party was? What was the thing that that rallied them to organize in those early years, like 2010? The like, what was the the rallying cry, the main organizing point for them? I think in the early years, they really did believe that it was about taxes. They truly believed that they were trying to be fiscal conservatives and, 
even into 2013, 2014, when I would interview local group leaders or even national group leaders, they would really try to bring everything back to that when I would try to ask them about abortion or race or anything else, they'd say, well, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of local groups think lots of things. You know, our group focuses on opposing jihad law in the U.S. because that's going to happen. Um, but uh, you know, the thing that unites us is this belief that the government should should be smaller. You know, we we really like Ronald Reagan, um, which was like useful as a cue card maybe, but didn't really explain the sustained. Um, animus not only against Barack Obama and the Democratic Party, but at that point, very clearly against the Republican establishment. Right. So they were sort of fighting two fronts here. They were they were going after the Republican Party and they were obviously just Obama was a and the Democratic Party was a huge uh, uh, enemy to them as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So so let's let's focus in now on the battle with the Republican Party aspect of this, because this is where, I mean, obviously, in my point of view, I think, and uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on this too, actually, maybe we should hit this before we move on. In my point of view, without a President Barack Obama, there is no Tea Party, because even though there is that insurgency group that wants to take over the Republican Party, the real organizing point, at least that motivated the people, the Republican base who were... uh, who had transitioned over to becoming Tea Party supporters, not so much those who were making money off the Tea Party, the leaders of the Tea Party, those looking to take over the Republican Party from the inside. I'm talking about the masses who showed out, who showed up on these lawns and protested with their signs. Uh, I don't think they would have gotten uh, as active, if active at all, if it wasn't for uh, the first black president. I think that's true. I think there's a lot of evidence of that. But before I was anywhere near finished with my book, there's um, a book that came out called Change They Can't Believe In by uh, one of my mentors, Chris Parker, who is at the University of Washington and studies race in American politics. And I mean, they have a lot of convincing research they do um, in terms of experiments that shows this kind of um, deeply cloaked racism that was motivating a lot of Tea Partiers despite the window dressing of fiscal conservatism. So Barack Obama certainly gave them the embodiment of of what they thought meant the destruction of their America, the end of this kind of uh, unearned white dominance. Right. Yeah, the the government was going to finally uh, get involved with their Social Security and their Medicare. I mean, it is... That sign will stick with me forever. It is totally astounding. It is amazing. Yeah, because those yeah. aren't welfare, right? All right. Get your government out of the government. Get the government out. No government in the government. Yes. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. It, was, it was a really Trumpy thing for them to say. Right, right. was a thing to say. Right, right. Oh, you know, Trump to me is is just the Republican Party with the, the mask off. I mean, it's always been there. It's just... They yeah. were always able to conceal it, use their dog whistles, but now it's just mask off. Just they flaunt it and they're very open with it. And he's, you know, it's almost pre, pre dog whistle because the whole dog whistle idea comes into prominence with Richard Nixon. Right. Um, but Trump is almost more like George Wallace. If if at that weird juncture in history when the Southern Democrats split, 
if George Wallace had been the nominee instead of Goldwater, for example. I mean, Goldwater was extreme in his own way, but he was the kind of proto-Coke brother choice, like the right. conservative establishment's choice. And there was another possibility for conservatism at that time. It didn't take it then, but that element never went away. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, you see it with Reagan, the Reagan years, and then when Newt Gingrich is Speaker of the House, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, to me, that's just the, 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 there's a line that just flows through that, all that and brings us here. But let's let's now talk about it. And from the title of your book, this seems to be really where where you focus on um, where you know where the Republican Party gets taken over by the Tea Party. Where does it begin? What what's like the the jump off point for the Tea Party to go from? Tea Party goes from the Ron Paul fringe to sort of this mainstream Glenn Beck far right. Uh, racist group to starting to actually put forth actual congressional candidates? Well, the the answer is in, in some steps, right? But the best way to explain it is by thinking about a coalition. Um, and, and this, so basically to explain this, we have to set aside a lot of how we think about parties, which is as these unified holes, you know, the Republicans believe this and the Democrats believe that Republicans are conservative, Democrats are liberal, and it's this kind of false equivalence and this, this assumption that there are never compromises, but in reality, parties, especially mass parties, like we have in the U S are coalitions of a bunch of groups who want things. And whatever the party's platform, their presidential nominee is at the time, is basically the the least bad option to the most people in that coalition. But what happens with the Tea Party is that you had a lot of different groups in the coalition who didn't really fit in the Democratic Party. They couldn't, you couldn't have these militias and border control sheriff's brigades go over to the Democratic Party and just like, hop on the bus, but they weren't getting a lot of attention in the Republican Party. They were kind of like, go sit down, you're embarrassing us. And you get these people, you get um, a lot of people who are very strongly climate deniers, people who believe Common Core is a mass government conspiracy, just a lot of different tiny groups that didn't ever get their way in big party discussions. And when you get enough of those groups together, they can form a sub-coalition. And if that sub-coalition is concentrated enough, and if they know how to use the machinery of power, which in our case is actually like conventions, primaries, caucuses, and at an even more local level, like city council, school boards, these kinds of things most people don't like paying attention to. When you have a very concentrated group of people who want to do that, they slowly can take over a party that's mainly made up of people who think they're a little bit, a little off. And that's what happened. I got to say, I, w- I was not expecting at this point in this discussion for it to be that analogous to QAnon. Honestly, I, I'm a little bit I, like I, I'm I've been covering QAnon. I mean, I, I was been cover. I was covering the Tea Party in the early years and I've been covering QAnon since what was it two and a half years ago since it first started. And I that might be the most succinct way I've ever heard anyone just put it all together and it's it's you know to hear it that way is actually like we're 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 in for it, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we're 
Because yeah. I, I think that QAnon is much more dangerous than the Tea Party because the Tea Party uh, may have been, uh, and I, I'd say this without putting down the danger the Tea Party was, but they at least existed in a reality somewhat. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it was a, it was a, a grandma's tea party, and that right was our like grandparents in the tea party. They had right some measure of I don't know restraint. Right, like even though there were those different, like you said, those different like fringe areas, the tea party was mostly. Uh, people who were racist, uh, but like old school racism. Not that it's any better, but there's a difference. There's a difference. They didn't think they were racist. Right. They we're not talking about hood wearing. Right. I'm sorry. You, the Skype cut out for a second. Say what you were saying. Oh, they truly didn't think they were racist. They just thought they deserved some things. Um, and if if other people got things, then that would mean less for them. Right. Right. It's the old school type racism of the the, the welfare queens, not so much the. Uh, we should, you know, yeah. eliminate an entire race of people. Yes, that's... Yeah, it's right. like white entitlement. Right. With QAnon, I mean, there's no basis in reality. There's no... There's no there, we're... Yeah. So let's yeah. get back to the Tea Party. But I just needed to go off there because it is... It hit me. It hit me. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, it... You brought up you brought up how you know the, the both the uh, you didn't do the both sides thing, but it made me think of. I'm sure you hear this a lot when you were talking about the Republicans and the Democrats and and how these groups decided how they who they were going to take over. Um, you must hear this a lot, especially when you were writing this book and as you got to promote it. You know, oh, so who is the uh, you know? But there's insurgency groups in the Democratic Party who are problematic too. I'm sure. Uh, speak on that a little bit because I'm. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it comes from this deeper fallacy that a lot of people have fallen into that, you know, is a fallacy of false equivalent, uh, equivalent. You know what I'm trying to say. But we falsely think that if there's one thing on in this one group, there must be an equal and opposite thing in this other group. And for some reason, a lot of people are uncomfortable saying that there's anything bad any one party does in our system it has to be both of them both being bad at the same time but it's you know as as with siblings when we have fights it's usually not that both of us were equally uh, causing the problem it's in the parties the republican party has done a lot more problem causing and there are a lot of different reasons for that um the way the party shook out historically in the 1960s to 1980s, the last time the party system kind of flipped, um, the Republican Party just had a much more unified message to start. There were a lot of things that you had to believe if you were going to be a Republican. And some of it's because the 1980s Republican Party was really shaped by another faction. And that was a Christian right. And they had their own um, kind of party line. You had to tow their own contract with America that everyone had to sign off on their own insurgency. The Democrats haven't had that because the Democrats became the party that was a coalition of everyone who wasn't quite right to the Republican Party. And it, it means the Democrats have not, um, they haven't taken such strong lines on who's in and who's out as the Republicans have. So that means that, yeah, there's a progressive wing of the party, if we want to call it that, or there are people in the Democratic coalition who are progressive. But the Democratic coalition 
has never really said, oh, we, we won't embrace any of that. We won't ever allow any of that in. So when you, you aren't sidelining people, you don't end up with these really extreme factions. I, I think that's part of it. I think the other part probably has something to do with the people in the factions, the the outlook they have on the world, the things they're willing to believe, um, and how suspicious they are of of people who aren't like them and of change. Right. I mean, the 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 so-called extreme factions on the left are are the ones who are. I mean, the 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 extremism they're pushing for the Democratic Party to do are usually things like giving health care to everybody and, and things like that. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, the extremism on the Republican Party is that there is a global satanic pedophile cabal made up of people from the Democratic Party and the Hollywood elite. I mean, it's yeah. a little bit it's a little bit different. Yeah, and they sell they sell children on Wayfair. I mean, this is not this is not the same thing as what Bernie Sanders' most far left supporters believe. Right. You aren't in the same class of things. Right, right. And to, I should just mention today is the uh, what is it the the ninth anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, and like when you think of a, a movement like that, I mean, Occu- I mean Occupy and Tea Party didn't start so far off, and. As much as I think Occupy helped sort of set how uh, on the ground, on the street movements work on the left to modern day, you see a lot of the the, stra- the the organizational tactics and strategies during protests and marches. I think you know during Black Lives Matter and you know anti-fascist marches. I think you see a lot of what came out of Occupy influencing that. But that's it. That's really all Occupy's influence was, unfortunately. They didn't take over the Democratic Party. It's, they didn't, I mean, I wish, but... <laughs> they didn't, they, well, this has been... Well, so what you said about strategies and, and tactics is actually really interesting because the Tea Party consciously borrowed those tactics. They were really into Saul Alinsky, who this was rules for radicals, like leftist organizing in the 1960s, like the Students for Democratic Society level organizing. And... Some uh, libertarian-funded groups really got onto that, and they gave it to the Tea Partiers. And th- there was nothing that appealed to a Tea Partier more than the idea that you could use the left strategies against them. So they incorporated those same mass organizing strategies while taking the knowledge they had as retirees who'd been part of their local Republican parties for however many years um, to like do things in their precinct, plus engage in all of this protest activity. Occupy, you know, they were in parks and tents. They had no interest in participating in party politics, much less trying to take over parties in state and local elections. Right. Uh, uh, Actually, I I think that's detrimental to the left, unfortunately, in that case. But uh, I think it's it's ineffective. Right. I don't know about ineffective, but it's definitely not the way to I mean, like we're just talking about Tea Party is the Republican Party, we'll, we'll get to, I don't want to get, spoiler alert, sorry everybody, <laughs> but yeah. Tea Party is the Republican Party of today, and Occupy is just a, a, a influential time in my life. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. unfortunately, right? I mean, ah, yeah. So let's, let's now, let's talk about, because let's talk about some of those, I, I guess the, the most, imp- just maybe off the top of your head, maybe like the, one or two congressional races that really 
put Tea Party on the map in terms of them, you know, putting their flag in the ground and saying, you know, we're taking over? You know, a lot of people would look at some of the high profile primaries in 2010. So Christine O'Donnell's like infamous uh, Delaware Senate primary where she wins the Republican primary and then has a a commercial where for some reason she feels the need to assure everyone she is. And I quote, not a witch. And it just it plays terribly. She loses to the Democrat. But I think that was a little bit more of the like just excitement of the Tea Party. All these newcomers wanted to run. The race that stands out to me was in 2014, in May. Um, it's when House Majority Leader Eric Cantor was unseated in a very safe district in Southern Virginia by an economics professor at a local Christian college who had no political experience, no funding from the Republican Party, no funding for big Tea Party groups, but I knew this area because I had interviewed tons of Tea Partiers down there and I knew there were at least eight local groups in that congressional district. And on their website, they were very blatantly organizing against Eric Cantor and having all these get out the vote campaigns. And it was Dave, send a Tea Partier to Congress, you know, Cantor's soft on immigration. David Bratt won the primary. Right. I remember that. Was, you know, what happened? I remember simultaneously being uh, overjoyed that someone like Eric Cantor lost and at the same time being like, oh, no, oh, yeah, yeah, like, oh, I mean, Can- Cantor is who I guess, I, I mean, it's funny because this is, Cantor is your, your, your Republican party. I mean, he is a very, he was a very conservative individual. But just because of his background, he is someone who I guess if this if this all happened just a couple of years later, he's someone that the Republican base would have viewed as the swamp. Yeah. And I mean, when the Tea Party first started, I remember being in a, a class on Congress in grad school and the professor, like put it this way, I'll never forget. It was, you know, John Boehner's Republican establishment. And then he has a Tea Party in the form of Eric Cantor nipping at its heels. You know, so I always that was my image of Eric Cantor. It's like the Tea Party's attack dog, except it didn't last for him. He wasn't Tea Party enough. Right. So, so would you, do, do you think, I, you know, I brought up the congressional uh, races and you gave me two, and it's amazing if you think about it, you know, Christine O'Donnell didn't win yet, yet, you know, she sort of was a great example of just how the Tea Party was taking over, even when they lose. Um, would it be fair though to say that the, these congressional races are when they start taking over or was there something else going on behind the scenes in addition to all that? I think by, by 2014, something was really happening. Um, the action starts in 2010 though, but I've been trying to dice this a bunch of different ways. I've been looking at primary races, like in that whole period, trying to see when the Tea Party uptick happens. And to me, the Tea Party moves out of one phase and into another, or you could even say it had three phases, but for sure it had an early protest phase when it was all about taxes and it was still getting a lot of money from the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity. And then by 2010, they jumped off a little bit on their own. There were too many people in it. The, the narrative was out of control. 
And then by 2013 to 15, like when the House Freedom Caucus starts, that's when you see the Tea Party in power. Because no longer were they, you know, this caucus that was made up of establishment people who were trying to ride the energy of this social movement. It was then the new driving force in the House of Representatives. Like pretty soon, the Freedom Caucus was the main caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. So to me, that's when the Tea Party as a faction really became powerful. And it, it did take place over the course of several years. I mean, you, the, the complete gutting of state and local Republican parties and the Republicanization of state legislatures and governor's mansions is something that a lot of people ignored to their own peril. Right. And we've seen the Freedom Caucus literally hold up alone, hold up legislation. They've even been a thorn in uh, Donald Trump's side. I mean, they've again, you know, and, and we're talking about this, too, because because the, the theme, the overall theme we're, that we're, 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 we're focusing on here is that the Tea Party did take over the Republican Party. But even inside of that, there is a group of Congress people who have even like like while the Republican Party has been so influenced by the Tea Party overall, to this group of republic to this group of Republicans who call themselves the Freedom Caucus, the influence wasn't even enough. Basically, like, they wanted it to go even further. Yes, yeah, and I mean, just look at the the train of um, Republican speakers or the the amount of obstructionism when the Republican Party controlled both the House and the Senate within the House from within the Republican Party. It, it's a different era of party politics where to be a Republican not only means to not be a Democrat, it means to not be like those other Republicans. It means to be not a rhino. Right. Now, now before we get into... What was that? There's some sort of new purity test. Right, right. Uh, you know, but before we go into how this gets us to Trump, I just want to, because because we're going to move beyond them, but I don't want to just not mention how integral they are here. The Koch brothers. Mm. How, uh, how, for people who don't, because the Koch brothers, I mean, one of them has passed on since, uh, but the Koch brothers really aren't that influential in the modern day Republican Party, thanks to Donald Trump. But during this party. Right. But during this... What was that? I'm sorry? Ironically. Right, right. But during this time period, they are the, 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 the you know, the, 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 the man behind the curtain. They are the great and powerful odds. They are the ones sort of funding this stuff and, and seemingly calling the shots. Tell us a little bit about how important the Koch brothers are during this time period about eh, 2010, maybe a little bit later, but 2010 to this this 2014 time period that brings the Tea Party to power within the Republican Party? So my answer is a little different than most people's because the, the kind of simple story on the Tea Party is that it's all dark money. It's just the Koch brothers just made this all happen. And there certainly were and, and continue to be these really extensive statewide networks funded by the Koch brothers. You have stuff like ALEC that has influenced a lot of state level legislation that was certainly pushed by Tea Partiers, but the Tea Party used the Koch brothers as much as the Koch brothers used them. They initially got a lot of funding and help 
from libertarian organizations like Freedom Works and Americans for Prosperity. But by 2011 or so, definitely by 2014, 2015, a lot of that funding had dried up. A lot of the libertarians who'd originally been pushing the Tea Party from within those organizations had moved on because the Tea Party was made up of a lot of people who just really didn't care who Friedrich Hayek was. They weren't into Austrian economics. It didn't grip their souls, no matter how many video series they were sent by uh, Mercatus or Cato or anywhere else. And at that point, the, the libertarian funders just, I mean, they, they had to step out or were pushed out. The Tea Party also kind of staged a rebellion against any, any so-called AstroTurf funding. Like they, they knew they were getting money from big donors and they didn't want it. They wanted to say that they were free from influence in some way. So they also started shying away from a lot of those organizations. Right. That's that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people really hear that part of it. Uh, I guess it makes sense, though, because the Koch brothers really, I mean, their, their interest in the Tea Party does stem from the, the Ron Paul uh, version of it in a sense that they're just looking for their looking out for their bottom line, their money. And what the Republican base was looking at in the Tea Party was how do we stop the other from taking what is perceived as ours? And by that, they don't mean, you know, weirdly enough, the, 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 those downtrodden, uh, economically struggling Republican base people, they weren't really caring so much about their money. They were caring so much about the cultural issues. Yeah, because they weren't. They weren't ever really that mad about taxes. They weren't really hit that hard by the first recession. Like just statistically, these are, well, were people who were over 45, if not 65, white, male, college educated, Christian, upper middle class, at least. Like they had money and time to be doing all this stuff as volunteers. It's so the, the, the libertarian message just didn't really sink in all the way. Um, and I had so many interesting conversations with like Matt Kibbe at Freedom Works or different libertarians who were involved in the Tea Party or had just stepped back from involvement in the Tea Party. And the way they described what they saw as the Tea Party's reason for being was very, very different than what I would get from local group leaders or local right. activists. Right. So let's now move into the, you know, the Trump era. I mean, uh, it's uh, how does the Tea Party get us here? Ah, well, not directly, but we we could think of we could think of them as paving the way. Maybe that's that's an analogy some people have used. If nothing else, they were a bridge, a bridge from an era when John McCain was the face of the Republican Party to an era where John McCain was not considered, well, at least by the president, a Republican, really a Republican anymore at the time of his death. This is a a big jump, but a jump from an era where a war hero is what the Republicans want for president and then one where you can make fun of a war hero. That took some doing. Um, and, And a lot of it actually occurs at the activist level. So this is why um, the QAnon stuff is so interesting to me, because I have been mired in, in, I guess, the pre-QAnon webverse for the last seven years. Because Tea Partiers did use the internet. They they used it badly. It'd be like one website 
with all their content just like right there up front. Like they didn't seem to know that people could just see what they were saying. Um, but it, it was all there and they have all these like Facebook groups and other kinds of local groups that were helping get out this information. And this is kind of the era when all of our parents became the main Facebook users. So the, the misinformation universe, the, the fake news world, Breitbart, all of that was central to the Tea Party in terms of their network of information long before anyone ever thought that Steve Bannon could be anyone's chief of staff. Right. So it's, it's really planting the, the, the seeds to make someone like Trump acceptable. Right, right. And I guess, you know, a good analogous conspiracy theory would be the idea that, you know, I feel like the, the Obama birth certificate could easily have been a QAnon conspiracy if QAnon was around during the Obama years. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was trying to explain this to my students today. We were analyzing some data about it, and they didn't remember what the birthers were. And so I had to explain it in terms of QAnon. That was the only way that it really made sense to them. Right. Like the conspiracy theory. Right. This, you know, the, I got to ask some questions about that, actually, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Uh, so, so, you know, so Trump, Trump very much is a product, like you said, it's not a direct, like Tea Party didn't push Donald Trump or bring him to president. Tea Party is already, I think, sort of, again, not disappeared, but has ingrained itself as Republican Party by the time Trump is going down that escalator and uh, announcing his candidacy in 2015. But they they put all the you know they, they they left all they left the breadcrumb trail like the QAnon people like to uh, to say to to get us there here and um, so do you think I and mean, we sort of said it at the beginning but do you think that now we're seeing a lot of a lot of the similar things that happen with the Tea Party happen with QAnon and to me we're at the point where when you have QAnon candidates running for office, I mean, it doesn't get any more analogous. I mean, we are, we're right there. I mean, I mean, they're doing their marches just like the Glenn Beck uh, thing in 2010. They're using the internet in the same ways like you just mentioned. They have, gee, we're, we're, we're assured at least one QAnon member of Congress with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, she is going to, her, her opponent, her Democratic opponent, dropped out of the race under really odd, suspicious circumstances. We don't know what the deal is, but the idea that this guy would run a campaign, win the Democratic nomination, and then suddenly say he's ineligible to become the, uh, if to win if he was, to become the, uh, the congressperson if he was to win because he's no longer going to live in the state. Weird decision to move out of the state as you're running for office there. Just, right. yeah. Um, wh what do you think about that? Like, what do you think it's going to look like? What, what do you, I mean, obviously this is all speculation, but based on your knowledge of the Tea Party, can you give us any idea of what you think will come of this? Well, I, I think that it suggests that the conspiracy-oriented style of politics that Trump and the Tea Party and QAnon have made popular is not a bug it's it's a feature of the republican party so these for some reason often young female QAnon candidates are 
are going to be the new face of the Republican Party. And I think one thing it tells us is that if a lot of people have been waiting for a return to normalcy whenever Donald Trump leaves office, that's not actually going to happen. If Donald Trump isn't the cause and the face of this, basically if it isn't just Trump, but is in fact something that you have to now believe or be or participate in to be a successful Republican now, it's going to persist. And you know, you could end up with a moderate faction, but otherwise it seems that being a, a QAnon believer is a perfectly acceptable, if not um, beneficial thing to be in a Republican primary right now. Right. Now, I, I sort of look at it like, uh, I, I think that, you know, what we're seeing now is just like the, the taste, obviously, of what a electoral QAnon looks like. Because Tea Party, from the, 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 the way the Tea Party and QAnon are different at this point, is that Tea Party, at the, at the start of it, but certainly by this point especially, is an electoral politic movement. Like, they know that they are getting together to vote a certain way at the voting booth. Now, obviously, the QAnon folks are mostly, if not all, made up of Trump supporters. However, it is not a movement to get people to vote. Like, they believe in so many different conspiracy theories. Their movement is basically just to spread these theories. It's not, to, you know, they're not holding voter drives. They're not, you know, going out there and organizing for candidates. The candidates who are running right now just happen to believe in QAnon. But what I think is that if you see if you see Trump win, the QAnon conspiracy theorists will continue, obviously, and they'll probably just gain a larger uh, uh, larger eyes. More people know about them; they'll have more eyeballs. Um, but if he was to lose, then I do think you would see a, a large portion of the QAnon movement turn into a legitimate organized group partaking in electoral politics to push forward candidates and actually get people to the uh, voting booth to, to, to vote. Yeah, they would have an enemy then. And I, I think that really is the difference. I, I, the only way we'll really know is for someone who is not Trump to eventually get elected and then we can start to compare you know, before and after. But it's quite possible that QAnon is what a faction like the Tea Party turns into when it's in power. Right. You, you know, you, you can't try to get this guy out of office right now. So instead, let's try to make sure as many people as possible um, at least are skeptical of the right people. They're just asking a lot of questions and, you know, we're planting this information. It That could be what it looks like when it's in power. Right. Now, for people who don't know, uh, everyone who listens to the show has probably heard about a hundred QAnon episodes out of the 128 episodes I've done. Uh, but uh, QAnon, just to get it out there, is a belief among many Trump supporters. It started with this whole idea. He had a, in October 2017, he had a group of military leaders at the White House. He throws this off-the-cuff line to the press that he basically says, you know, the, the st it's the calm before the storm. And that basically sets off this belief among a lot of conspiratorial Trump supporters that, you know, there's going to suddenly be mass arrests of Trump's political enemies. And then out of this comes this individual or individuals. We don't know exactly how many or who is behind the Q account. But this entity known as Q starts posting on the image boards like 4chan and 8chan that giving these little like breadcrumbs or, or hints or tips, basically presenting themselves as an insider within the government, a Trump ally, 
who's telling his Trump his supporters online what's going to happen, what's coming, and from all of this comes the belief that Trump is fighting a global satanic pedophile cabal that's trafficking children across the around the globe and it's made up mostly of the democratic party members of the democratic party and the hollywood elite and of course you know george soros is funding them and all the other anti-semitic anti-semitic conspiracies get thrown in there and then in my view and i've said this from the very beginning QAnon became an incubator for basically any other conspiracy theory on the right it you know you know, Pizzagate, if pizza, you know, Pizzagate is a thing within QAnon, but Pizzagate did die down at first, and this was before QAnon, the idea that there was a DC pizza parlor that was trafficking children in their basement, uh, a, a man armed with a rifle showed up demanding to be brought to the basement to free those children, only to find out that the pizza parlor actually doesn't even have a basement, um, it was really like that, uh, like well, Pee Wee's Big Adventure when he's looking for the basement of the Alamo where his uh, bicycle was apparently being stored after it was stolen. And he travels all the way to Texas to only find out that the Alamo doesn't have a basement. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, if, if Pizzagate came after QAnon, it never would have died down because it just would have gotten eaten up by QAnon because QAnon, I mean, you see this, QAnon was rather small. I'm sorry to go on this tangent now with you here, but QAnon was rather small before, I mean, it was growing, but it was rather small before the coronavirus pandemic because what happened is all the coronavirus conspiracies got thrown into the QAnon world. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, so I think the thread that binds all of it together is this thing called status threat, which comes out of a lot of different theories in psychology. But, but one of the main ones is an idea from, um, I, I think, developed in a business school to try to explain what happens in a business culture when there's been like a big firing layoff, some sort of like seismic shift in the organization and everyone gets really freaked out and they start looking over their shoulders and they're willing to believe anything about anybody. And it's this idea that their status is threatened in the organization. And if they can just figure out where it's coming from, then they'll be safe. And it creates this propensity to believe and then to seek conspiracies, to order your universe with these conspiracies. Now, if, if you don't mind me asking you, you mentioned this before and I, I need to ask, what do, uh, if, if you don't mind, like what is the age range of your students and what do they know about QAnon? Because it's, I, I just need to know what, what's going on out there about this. I need to ask them about this a little bit more. Um, so I teach undergraduates right now. So I think a lot of these students are between like 19 and 22. They nod very knowingly when I mention QAnon. It's like, oh yeah, okay. Now, birtherism, they don't really know what that is, but like QAnon is something that enough of them recognize. But probably Tuesday, I think we're gonna have to have like a little discussion about it because now I really wanna know how much they know or if they're just, you know, nodding because they want me to think they know. Right, because I think there's a real problem with, I mean, just how a lot of this birther stuff was being spoken about in the media and among people who were hearing about this news from the media. And the way QAnon is spoken about, and you saw it most in your face with the way that reporter asked that question to Donald Trump the first time he was asked about QAnon. Yeah. And it was asked as if this was the thing that was happening. 
what do you think about your believers who 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 your supporters who believe that you are fighting a this global pedophile ring uh, that's made up of uh, uh, satanic worshiper Satan worshippers? Uh, what do you think about that? And when you when you when you ask them about that, when, when normal people hear about that, they're gonna go, "Oh, Donald Trump's fighting a global satanic pedophile ring. That sounds like a good thing for him to do." Yeah. But it's never like because I guess people in the media assume that most people would hear that and go, "That's preposterous. That's ridiculous. That sounds insane." But on the contrary, most people hear that, unfortunately, and go, "That's happening. That's terrible." Yeah, and it's it that that belief in itself is like the the encapsulation of everything that different fringe groups on the right have been pushing since. I mean, for a long time, but at least since the 1980s, right? Like this was the early textbook battles about how the secular secularists are trying to brainwash our children with theory of evolution. And we should pull out of the UN and every UN initiative is an attempt by world government. And they're all actually Satanists because they're humanists, which means they're not Christians and so forth. Like this is what um, I... I grew up in a Christian like homeschooling circle that was very fundamentalist. This is 100% what they believed that Bill and Hillary Clinton were doing in the 1990s. And so when I hear it now, I'm like, oh, people still think that? Yeah, but right. they're louder. <laughs> they're better at disseminating it. Right. It's, it is amazing how like even the conspiracies of today, I mean, the QAnon beliefs are basically rooted in Christian fundamentalism, I mean, it's and, and a lot of a lot of the QAnon backers, a lot of the QAnon believers are very religious. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's believing it, right? Which is sort of weird because you think you could just continue to believe that while still using your religion as the backbone. You don't need to belong to this fringe movement, but I have, I, I, I have some theories about that one again but theories but so we do know that people well millennials and younger are the least religious generation of any known generation in american history if not global history so even those of us who are raised with religious roots don't observe so there are a lot of people though who you know, they're sympathetic to that it was their first language um they use the internet they, I mean, I wish we had more surveys of QAnon supporters. They're hard to survey, so I don't know for sure. But my guess would be that QAnon belief is higher among people who are not college educated, who've not been to as many places in the world. So if this is really the case, then it's it's like religion for a, a religionless time for a lot right. of my- Right, that's a great point because, you know, I've I've noticed that you know QAnon and I, I you know a year ago or, or a year and a half ago I wrote a piece about how QAnon is a boomer movement, and now I wouldn't write that same piece because j- literally just since the coronavirus pandemic, the yeah. demographics of QAnon have changed. Uh, <laughs> I believe younger people are looking for an answer or a scapegoat for the pandemic, and a lot of QAnon conspiracies have uh, come out about the pandemic. I also think even for the non-religious, even very liberal uh, young people, the word, the, the idea that 
child sex trafficking is a bad thing, which it obviously is. There's no one who thinks that's a good thing. But the word pedophile is used so freely by the right to just blast their their enemies with because they know how charged it is. I mean, yeah. no one, no one, no, no one, you know, you could even convince that atheist 22-year-old that, like, that person who's completely on their side, you just hone in enough people saying that person's a, a pedophile, you'll get that atheist 22-year-old to believe that person on their side's a pedophile, and there, they have, you have them as their enemy as well. Yeah, and, and sex trafficking as well. Like, these two have been pretty effectively deployed um, on the right to steer policy towards causes that they want. So a lot of, like, so-called sex trafficking laws are really laws meant to push a certain version of morality and the the people that they hurt and penalize are often women who are in different kinds of professions that a lot of Christians don't think people should be in or uh, pedophile is a word that Christians were throwing around a lot in the early 2000s um, as a way to try to scare people off of gay marriage they they just consistently tried to link the idea of someone having a preference for the same sex and someone being a pedophile or the idea of bestiality, like just making this jump. And, you know, if people didn't interrogate that very hard. If they were already prone to, to want to find a reason not to support marriage equality, then that's a pretty good one. Right. And I mean, you, you, you see it happening with that law that they're trying to pass in California right now that's been completely perverted by QAnon and the right, where it's basically just the law to update the, the how, how they treat uh, how they treat um, gay people under the law and uh, relationships with adults and underage children. Right now, if you are uh, a heterosexual couple, uh, you get away with more under the law in California and gay people are getting harsher penalties simply for being gay so that law to update that is being turned into oh the democrats in california are trying to legalize pedophilia in it's it's insane frankly (laughs) yeah yeah i I mean that's exactly an example of this it's the same rhetoric just being recycled and a new group of people are believing it maybe they forgot what it was linked to I don't know. Right. I, I think it's just uh, a lot of people just don't remember any of this stuff. Like, you're seeing so much regurgitation with different, like, cultural moral panics, things we've seen over and over, this whole cancel Netflix thing. I mean, how many times have we seen this with the, the explicit content on music, uh, trying to ban video games during the 90s? I mean, it's just the same thing over and over again, just updated. And I, th- I honestly think this time they might have found the right thing because the idea that children are being abused is horrendous. So you just take that, make up bullshit where it's not actually happening, uh, which frankly is sad because it hurts actual child abuse when you make up mm-hmm. fake cases of child abuse. But, you know, it's just a charged issue. You just make it up, you say that, and then you, you let the panic just roll through all these people who are less informed, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of what they did to abortion rhetorically. You know, no one wants to kill babies. So if we just make it about this like general fear that there's a baby genocide going on, then who can stand against that? And it, it is effective because if you're, if you, you aren't that politically informed and you just hear that emotionally, it, it's appealing. Right. 
Dr. Rachel Bloom, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a fantastic conversation. I mean, it, it that that specific part of our talk where you just, I mean, it was like, it hit me and I was like, oh man, this is, I know it's bad, but just I guess hear it from someone else just in that way, it was just like, ooh, we are in for it. We are. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're in it right now. <laughs> right, right. But I think, like, for people who don't think it, get, it could get worse, you just wait, really. Yeah. You just wait. Uh, where, is your book out now? I, I want to make sure I, I get people to it. It is. So you can get it on Amazon. Um, you can also get it through the University of Chicago Press's page. So they are printing it, like, as we speak. And it's being shipped to different suppliers. So... I've been told if you order it on Amazon right now, it says it will ship around the 25th or the 29th. So basically, it's being printed in, in post, post-COVID postal service times. Right. It's basically out. Got it. So that book is How the Tea Party Captured the GOP, Insurgent Factions in American Politics. Is there anything you'd like to plug, a website, uh, social media, anywhere people can follow you? Yeah, um, my website is rachelmbloom.com, so pretty easy to find. My Twitter handle is bloomrm, B-L-U-M-R-M. Um, and I I don't tweet as often as I, I should, but I, I do try to tweet things of this genre, so you can find me there. All right. Thanks so much again. Uh, feel free to email me when you ask your students about QAnon. I would love to hear their experiences, what they know of it. It's just, it's something I'm hardcore in that world. And it's fascinating to find out what people outside this political bubble know of it. Because it's a really small world we're in. I mean, frankly, it's amazing how influential this world is to everything, but also just how tiny it is. And how the rest of the world literally does not look at these things the same way as people like you and I because we're just they're just not in the thick of it <laughs> yeah and it's you know it's it's a lot to get into there are a lot of breadcrumbs so. right oh. follow those uh the follow the white rabbit or whatever it is they say where we go one we go all Rachel uh <laughs> take care have a great night thank you bye all right ladies and gentlemen I that that was a for me that was a great interview. I mean that was uh, I mean I, I I know a lot of people aren't familiar with my er, the early years of the Majority Report, but go back to 2011, 2012, 2013 Majority Report era when I was on the show. Um, some of that stuff is even before the Michael Brooks era when he joins the show. But me and Sam were covering the Tea Party stuff at this time, and it is really like I'm telling you guys we are we are in for it. If, if, I mean, I can always be wrong. And when I mean wrong, I mean there could be changes that happen in the world. Who knows where QAnon just turns a completely different way or who knows what. But the way things are going right now, which is all I can really do to inform myself and you, the way things are going right now, it's going to be bad. And it's going to be bad. And it's going to be bad. I mean, we are... People were wondering uh, over the, the weekend why I decided to uh, say anything about that whole Netflix controversy with that French film they put out. And I'm telling you, it is 100% because of this. 
Do you think I really have an affinity for uh, uh, coming of age films about uh, girls dancing? Uh, <laughs> it is because of the entire realm that is the conservative. It's I, I, honestly, I think conservative isn't even the proper word for it anymore. We are in a world that is being shaped by the far right. And it is completely being shaped by conspiracy theories. It is being shaped by uh, evangelical, uh, far right even Christian uh, evangelical Christian beliefs. And if you care anything about uh, literally any sort of sane semblance of the world you you once lived in, I mean, there's nothing very sane about a world under a pandemic, but. If you enjoy your Star Wars, you enjoy your your video games, your Fortnite, your Minecraft, your whatever, even the most uh, innocent of cultural things, uh, these folks, these conspiracy theorists will comfort. I mean, look at Tom Hanks. There is no better example than what they are doing to Tom Hanks. There has never been a single negative thing out there on the internet, uh, a single bad report, a single actor talking shit about Tom Hanks. Yet the QAnon people are coming for Tom Hanks saying he's a pedophile. I mean, I don't know what what other example I need to give you guys. You don't even like his movies. You could hate him because he's a rich celebrity. Whatever. But the idea that Tom Hanks is an evil, satanic uh, pedophile who's trafficking children uh, is... Just batshit crazy. I'm sorry. And if they could come for Tom Hanks, they'll come for you and everything you love as well. Uh, so even if you're not a fan of whatever it is they're coming for, you should still fight back against it. Because, you know, like I just said, they'll, they'll come for you next. Really. I mean, Charlie Crook went on that whole rant about how the, the left is trying to jail Trump. And if they win this election, if Joe Biden wins... Uh, they'll come for you, your money, your children. It's projection. It's projection. That is what they're doing right now. Look at what they're doing to those women in that facility in ICE, in Georgia. It is... It is something that you guys should be aware of. And... That's, you know, that's all I, I don't know what else to say. I don't want this to be something where Sam Cedar is going on MSNBC in two years saying we should have listened to Matt Binder like he did when I was uh, really uh, trying to sound the alarm about how important the Gamergate stuff was. I don't want that to be to happen again. I would love to be able to shove it in everyone's face and be called. Uh, I remember uh, Michael Brooks called me the, like a Nostradamus. Uh, I would love to be able to do that and tell everyone how right I was again. But I'd prefer not to. I'd prefer it not to happen at all. So let's all get on the same page and realize what's going on here. Simple enough. All right. Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. Um, that's how you can support this show. Uh, I would really like to be able to do more stuff. I'd really like to be able to do more shows. I'd really like to be able to spend more time on this. 
my newsletter is getting a lot of subscribers. It's a free newsletter, misinfo.com. I would like to spend more time on that, and I consider this part of that. Um, maybe eventually I will, if the, if the newsletter takes off in its own right, I will turn on a subscription for the newsletter, a separate subscription. But if the Patreon takes off on its own, and I won't have to do that. I'll consider it just wrapped up in here. So patreon.com slash mattbinder. Any sort of amount you can give, that's wonderful. If you can't afford to do so, especially in the times of the pandemic, please don't. But if you can, please do. Uh, if you can't afford to, or if you need, if you'd like to support in non-monetary ways as well, the newsletter, misinfo.com, M-I-S-I-N-F-O. It's not miss as in like a woman, like Mrs. Info. It's short for misinformation. That's an actual word, misinfo. Misinfo.com. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash mattbinder. Follow me on social media, wherever you are, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, Matt Binder, at Matt Binder. Um, I should probably start focusing on TikTok, being that TikTok is really becoming more influential. And I actually think uh, TikTok is a much better platform than, uh, than uh, like Instagram. Uh, so, you know, uh, search me on, Inst- on TikTok if you'd like, Matt Binder. Uh, I've not used it, but I'm on there. Um, doomedpod.com for the podcast version of this show. Uh, leave an iTunes review. Leave a Google Play review uh, if you can. Leave a written one too. Not, don't just click those stars. Leave a written review if you can as well. Uh, Super Chats. If you're watching right now, as we go to the second half of the show, um, I will take your calls. Uh, actually, I don't know if we have time for calls today. But I will take your IMs. IMs. I don't do instant messengers. I will take your chat room questions and comments. I'll try to get to some of the good ones, but I will definitely get to every single super chat. So again, uh, youtube.com slash mapbinder, drop a super chat in there with your question or comment. It will definitely be read. Uh, I think that's it, right? Yeah. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, see you in the second half of the show. And if you're not coming along for that ride, see you all next time on Doomed.